Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a new documentary podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past, and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode four, Bug Salad. In the Mac gaming scene in the late 1990s, there were basically five or six companies that everyone knew. You had the two leading publishers of PC game conversions, MacSoft and Aspire. Then the two most successful independent studios who specialize in original development, namely Pangea and Bungie. And finally the shareware giants, Freeverse and Ambrosia, who sold their games over the internet, sans box or CD. Now, Freeverse favored family-friendly entertainment and plenty of tongue-in-cheek humor with cartoony graphics and silly jokes. They even had a ridiculous little game called Sim Stapler and a smiley face that played a recording of the two founders' other brother, Jared, singing badly in Spanish. A smiley face program that somehow went viral and got written about on Wired and used in a blockbuster video commercial. Ambrosia wasn't like that. Ambrosia was different. They were to Mac games what Sega had been to the console space since the days of Genesis does what Nintendon't. They were smug and in your face and proud of it. And their games, which typically played like edgy remixes of arcade classics like Asteroids and Centipede and Kicks and all sorts of others, they channeled the spirit of early hip-hop music to sample all the culture around them with sound effects recorded off of movies and popular TV shows, and music that was loud and irritating to anyone who didn't get it. Ambrosia's smugness wasn't just something you'd see in their games, either. It was part of their whole identity. It was in their advertising, their graphic design, even their company newsletter, which, like the games, was distributed online, and which made no attempts to placate the squares who were outside of this cool culture. Ambrosia's fans loved the company voice. Ambrosia was fiercely independent, fiercely devoted to the internet, fiercely devoted to shareware, and fiercely anti-Windows. And so were they. Jason Wong was one such fan. Okay, so in college, I got my first Mac. It was a Century 650. And... This was before there was, you know, networked dorms or anything, but I had a modem on it and I would connect to, I guess I had America Online and Ambrosia had a forum there. And I I had all these guys in my dorm room playing Maelstrom. Maelstrom is basically Asteroids, the old arcade game where you pilot a spaceship flying through the asteroid belt. Most of these people had DOS machines, maybe running Windows 3.1, and the, the graphics that were in Maelstrom were you know, blowing all their computers out of the water. So they were really interested in that. And I I started corresponding with Ambrosia then because this was 1993 and email was something I had read about before that. And 1993 in the United States was around the time that people coming to college, the first thing they did was ask for an email address. 93 and 94 especially. So with all these people wanting to get email addresses and try out this new thing, which, you know, email was, was extremely new novel 
to be able to email the people that made this game because they included their email address there and said, hey, please email us. So I did. Um, I would make up stories about how uh, how Maelstrom had saved my friend's life because he uh, was playing the game and he missed a class. And then it turned out that somebody next to him spilled some chemical in his lab if he had been sitting there. But because because he was playing Maelstrom instead of sitting in his, his chemistry class, his life was saved. And I thanked Ambrosia for that. It was, you know, it was a silly, stupid idea, but... But I'm, I kind of, I, every few months I would send them an email, my freshman year anyway. We, there was a, I, I think I tried to manufacture some kind of controversy about the, the steel asteroids in Maelstrom, whether uh, they could be blown up or not, and um, how it had, you know, created some kind of uh, riots on the campus when people found out you could blow them up. These are all just totally made up stories, but I would send them. And just because, just because I could email and because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do my schoolwork. When Ambrosia published a space trading combat and exploration game by independent programmer Matt Birch called Escape Velocity in 1996, Jason found himself hooked. He got so deeply into it that he decided to email them about it. And they quoted me because back then it was, it was a thing to quote people that had used your game. That was part of the the marketing strategy, uh, make an animated GIF with four of the best quotes that people had emailed in about the game. And mine was one of them that I, I said, I'm an addict. Oh, yes, I am. Uh, EV should remind you every few hours to go out and enjoy life. Um, and they liked that. Fast forward another year or so to 1997, when he was just coming out of college. And Jason heard that Ambrosia was looking for a new marketing and public relations person to work out of their little office in Rochester, a city in upstate New York. And when I was getting out of college, I had studied uh, television production. The reason that I had uh, studied that is because I thought I wanted to work in broadcast news. And every broadcasting internship I had was not fun. And I realized that maybe I shouldn't go into broadcasting. Uh, so as I was coming out of college and wondering what I was going to do, I remembered you know, I'm, I've been having all this fun with Ambrosia games, and I've been really deeply involved with the Mac and internet things. And it seemed like, you know, if they were looking for a marketing person, what's what's the worst that could happen? You know, I, if I, it's in, I lived in my family lived in Maryland at the time, and uh, I, you know, Rochester was you know half a day's drive from uh, where they lived. So I, I said, let's let's try this out. And it was a lot of fun. I, I interviewed and they, they, uh, they hired me. That's pretty much how it was. Jason loved working at Ambrosia. He was excited to be a part of this scrappy underdog company that shipped its games not when they'd agreed to do so, but rather when they felt the games were ready. He loved their independence and the fact that they could put out commercial caliber games on shoestring budgets and still earn the adulation of the small cadre of devoted Mac gamers. The Ambrosia Times was the company's way of taking their core fanbase behind the curtain to get to know the people who made the games and kept the business ticking along, to laugh at the mischief that the office mascot, a parrot called Hector, kept getting into, and to join in harmony against all the giants of the industry that stood for everything they hated. To be clear, this wasn't solely an Ambrosia thing. There was, there was this whole 
uh, I, I don't know what the word is, just a smugness uh, that that was around in the Mac business back then. I mean, back then, uh, Mac Attic magazine came out and they would make videos of people, you know, smashing Windows computers. Th- there would be a video like on, on each CD with every issue and it was somebody would, would like, hey, look, it's a PC. And they'd run up to it and hit it with a baseball bat or something. There was, I, I guess I, I call it kind of a, a flip kind of attitude. I um, mean, you can kind of see that a little bit in the way that Ambrosia marketed itself. Now, having, you know, worked in other businesses, in corporations, that kind of thing totally seems foreign to me. But but I still look back on it fondly because, you know, I mean, I, I can't do that kind of stuff now, but, uh, but it was fun then, uh, definitely. Jason's other task, besides leading the marketing efforts, was to help test games and report any bugs he found. He'd learned a programming language called Pascal while he was in college, which had taught him how to think about systems and algorithms. So he excelled at this. At one point, he was testing a game in development called Scythera. It was a role-playing game by a guy called Glenn Andreas, who worked remotely. And it cast you as the saviour of a nation in the midst of a great power struggle between its ruling houses, each determined to seize control as the king's power wanes, while some magic-wielding dudes elsewhere are trying to raise human consciousness to another level. Or something like that. So in Scythera, which we, we pronounce it Scythera, in, in-house, until I met Glenn Andreas at a Macworld and he said Scythera. So then I realized I'd been saying it incorrectly all that time. And I thought his name was Andreas until I met him and he said it was Andreas. But <laughs> it's another story. I want to quickly pause the story here to take a moment to ask that if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and consider sharing it on social media or reviewing it on iTunes. And then maybe sign up for a monthly pledge on Patreon, where I'll be posting ad-free episodes and lots of bonus stuff. Head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon for more information. I'll remind you again later. But for now, on with the show. So, one of the things about Cytheria was everything in it was going to be an object, including uh, a person. So if you killed a person character, they would transform into a corpse sprite, I guess you'd call it. And then you could double-click on it, and then a bone window would open. So... I began to think about, okay, what are the things you can do with a corpse in this game? And um, it was it was a fairly epic email when I when I found when I listed all the things you could do with corpses that you probably shouldn't be able to do. One of them was so if your character had a carry weight limit of say I don't know 75 pounds and the corpse weighed 50, these aren't right numbers. Uh, let's just let's just say that's it, right? So you could carry this corpse, but then anything the corpse was carrying uh, would not count on your carry weight. So then you could pick up things and use the corpse kind of like a purse to carry things. And then it was calculating the corpse's carry weight because it was the same one uh, that it had while it was alive. So if it got full, you could have the corpse carry another corpse, which would then carry stuff. Um, And I (laughs) I got this thing where I had like six or seven corpses that were just, I was just carrying them and walking around when I shouldn't have been able to. And that's that's not a showstopper right there. That's just, you know, an exploit. But then I turned it into a showstopper by making 
the corpse at the end of the line carry the one at the beginning of the line and, and it hung the game. So <laughs> that was kind of fun. There was uh, another one where uh, I was trying to uh, trying to talk to somebody and finding people to talk to them was really hard in that game because if you were someplace they were supposed to be, they wouldn't uh, appear. Instead, you had to get there after they got there. So I didn't know that, and I would wait in people's bedrooms, and they would never show up because I was there. So what I, what I would do is I'd, I'd put the corpse in their bed, hoping that maybe the bed would be occupied and that they um, wouldn't be able to get into it, and then I could talk to them because I needed the game to advance, and I wanted to talk to this character. But no, these people would just hop right into bed with a corpse, which was pretty bad. But also, like, there, there was things that it, they added to that game because of me. Like, when the reason I had put a corpse there was because I had been sleeping in these people's bed. Hopefully that... I was hoping that, that the character wouldn't be able to get into the bed. And uh, they added something where if I'm sleeping in somebody else's bed, if, if the main character is sleeping in somebody else's bed the person will show up and a speech balloon will say, hey, get out of my bed. He'll kick you out of bed and then he'll get into bed. Somewhere along the way, Jason had an idea. Nobody likes software bugs, but maybe they'll be fun if finding them comes with a reward. Ambrosia announced the bug-free pledge rather suitably at the end of a list of patch notes for existing software in the Ambrosia Times in August 1999. This is a fun one. So I got one of the built-in voice synthesizers from the old-school Macintosh to read some of it out for you. Ambrosia Software, Incorporated fired a shot across the software world's bow and it announced today that it would force marketing director Jason Hine to reload his exif and files last winter 1990. Nine spring 2000 product shipped with a bug. In doing so, the company became the first software publisher in history to punish its marketing staff with instant penalties. And then a little further down, more information. If any of Ambrosia's late 1999 or 2000 releases require bug fixes, I may be required to eat live or roasted crickets. Grasshoppers, locusts, spiders, or any number of edible insects at a special bug munching jamboree at Macworld, New York, 2000. They also encouraged other developers to join in this bug-eating fiesta by forcing their own marketing staff to eat insects, because somebody should be held accountable for software defects. The news was spread far and wide across the Macintosh community, and it even found its way into Mac Addict magazine, one of the larger Mac-focused magazines, which promised continuing coverage as bugs, coded or ingested, warrant. There were two things going on with, with the bug-free challenge uh, when, it, when I came up with that. One is I really liked going to Macworld Expo, and I had been... I think in, yeah, I went the first time in 1998 and we, we had a booth. And the second time was in 1999. 
and the booth was four times the size and we were sharing it with two other companies. So it was a little bit more expensive that time. When we came back from that, there was a question about whether we would go back again. And I wanted to try to find a way to make sure that we could. So I thought, well, if, if I say that I'll eat bugs, then we'll have to go. <laughs> so there was that. The other thing was, you know how I was saying that I liked that we could hold on to games until they were ready. I mean, not, not to badmouth, you know, Scythera, but I mean, I knew that when we shipped it, there were going to be a lot of bugs in it. But I think at that point, it had been a number of years since it had been announced. Actually, I don't remember how long it had been. I just, it seemed like it, people had, had known about it for a long time. So we were committed to shipping it a little bit after a little bit after Macworld. So I thought maybe if I promise to eat the bugs and they know that there are bugs in Scythera, maybe they will hold off and, you know, actually get rid of some of these bugs. But, but they ended up not doing that. I was kind of sneaky about that uh, uh, because having done two Macworlds and I'd read all the rules about exhibiting and the, the, the rules for these things are you have to be a lawyer practically to understand them or just have a lot of time on your hands to read them. I mean, they, there's rules about the size of your wheels on your cart when you're moving stuff in there. It, it can't be any bigger than, you know, a roller skate wheel. If it's bigger than that, then you can't bring the cart and you have to pay the drayage union to bring things for you. Uh, if you have, uh, like, if you don't understand the rules, if you have something overnighted to your booth, then someone from the, that union would bring your, your little envelope to your booth and um, they would bill your, your company something like 100 bucks or 150 bucks or something because deliveries to your booth are billed in a minimum of 100 pounds. I mean, there's all kinds of rules, but one of the rules uh, was that you can't bring live creatures with you under any circumstance, I guess, as part of your, your exhibit. So when I said that I was going to eat bugs I said live or roasted. I already knew that live bugs were not allowed. Because, I mean, can you imagine a, a roach infestation at, at the Javits Center? That, that would, well, maybe they already have one. I don't know. But I don't think that they'd want to encourage one. So I, I already knew that, that, that they were going to be roasted because I couldn't have live ones. Um, I knew where to get them. The, you know, there's biological supply companies that schools use to, to get, you know, specimens and stuff. So I figured that we could get get them from there. Now, what I what I didn't realize, what I didn't totally think through, is I didn't know that that I wasn't going to be working at Ambrosia by the next year. Jason ended up leaving Ambrosia for another Mac gaming company called Green Dragon Creations a short time before the MacWorld Expo, but he decided to go through with it anyway. He still loved Ambrosia. Here's how Ambrosia Software president and founder Andrew Welch remembers what happened next. And uh, we actually turned it into kind of a, a big publicity event and we bought like <laughs> we bought like some tarantulas and some Madagascar hissing cockroaches and scorpions and all this kind of stuff. We all crashed in my an ex-girlfriend of mine's apartment in, in New York City. This was a uh, Macworld New York City and we had all these crazy insects and stuff that we were cooking in our kitchen. She's like, Oh my God, if any of these things get loose, I'm going to kill you. But we ended up making like, I think we made like a, a pizza out of the Madagascar hissing cockroaches. And we had all these crazy things. And 
And we actually had a big, <laughs> a big throng of people outside our booth that, uh, you know, we were sitting there and they were watching us eat this stuff. And it was, <laughs> it was pretty revolting and, and a pretty, uh, uh, you know, kind of juvenile thing to do, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, it was pretty entertaining. And I think that was something that a lot of people remembered. <laughs> and we, we did the, for a pure on, like that was a little bit late. We did a no bath till beta where I told everyone and we, you know, we made it sound funny, you know, whatever, that I just wasn't going to take a bath until this thing actually got done and was in beta test. And I actually really did that. And I really did not smell good at all for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Jason, of course, remembers the bug eating incident in greater detail. I, the other thing that I hadn't expected was that it was going to be three days worth of, uh, of eating bugs. Uh, I figured it would be once, but but it was three days. We did it. I, I'm pretty sure it was the, the 3DFX booth. Um, it was a big stage. There were uh, probably hundreds of people watching. And there was, I think, 400 mealworms, four deaths head cockroaches, four Madagascar hissing cockroaches, one tarantula, and one scorpion. The mealworms were kind of in a, a salad. They had dressing on them. The, the, the cockroaches, I think, were on pizza. Um, they, weren't, they weren't very good at all. The tarantula, okay, so the story with tarantulas is if you're cooking them, you're supposed to cook them over an open flame so that you can singe the hairs off of them. This tarantula was cooked in an oven, so it's, it, was, it still had hair on it, and I bit into the, the back of it, and I don't remember so much about what it tasted like because it was seasoned or something, but the hair stuck in my gums for the rest of the day. And, you know, it's, it's, you're at a show, you're talking to people, and you're feeling, you know, these, these uh, hairs scratching the inside of your cheek. Every time you talk, it, it gets kind of uh, distressing. <laughs> the scorpion, I, that, that one, I, I think I remarked after I ate it that it was the, the best thing they had fed me the whole time. They, they didn't feed it to me until the third day. And I was like, shoot, we, we should have had this earlier. It was great. The other thing is each day there was a, a bottle of wine. And I was, I was washing the, the bugs down with the wine. And I'm not really sure. I, I know we had passed the mealworms around. Uh, I don't remember if I passed the wine around. But um, I guess I got a reputation for liking wine there because there was this game that some fans had made called Escape from Jason Wong. After the event, a few guys calling themselves Donkey Punch Software, that name being a reference to a fake sex move that was getting shared around in the late 90s, uh, which involves punching someone in the back of the head during sex. They decided to test his sense of humour and poke fun at the incident. They released a crude little joke game called Escape from Jason Wong, in which you had to run around collecting pallets with the Ambrosia software logo on them in a series of square-shaped arenas. There were wine bottles scattered around that you could steal and drop to distract the floating heads of Jason and the three other guys who were in pursuit. If you ate bugs, you moved faster, and if you got caught three times, you got wronged. 
and then it was game over. The game came bundled with a mock press release that boasted it was developed from scratch in six days and includes a whole bunch of levels and it incorporates all the latest technologies such as creepy floating heads and bright red tiles and an artificial intelligence that can outperform Jason in many tasks such as tying sneakers and catching the elusive members of Donkey Punch software. It explained the bug-eating challenge and how Jason had to eat the bugs every day outside the 3DFX booth in front of a crowd of bemused and delighted onlookers, and it mentioned that he always had a bottle of wine to help him wash the bugs down. And so began their ridiculous tale. They claimed that they stole Jason's wine on the third day, but they couldn't figure out how to get the cork out, so they put it back rather sheepishly and waited around for the final round of bug-eating. And then came the punchline. Jason doesn't recall if this ever actually happened, but the fake press release says that he gave a short speech. I'll read it out to you. It goes, I have one more thing I need to take care of before I start. I need to fire a customer. Whoever stole my wine, I want you to leave right now. Don't buy Ambrosia products. Don't look at our website. We don't want anything to do with you. And we're pretty sure Mac Addict hates you too. <laughs> that all right that's that sounds that sounds like something that we, we i don't remember if if we actually were allowed to fire one customer a year or if that was something that i had just talked about because wh- whenever you're working with with technical support there's always somebody that that you want to cut your losses with there was there was uh somebody at my college that Apple made her sign an agreement saying she would never buy another Macintosh again, which is the equivalent of firing them as a customer because they had already lost, I guess, three times the value of her Mac in, in doing support for her. She probably had like six motherboard replacements for stuff that nothing was wrong. So uh, I don't, I don't, I don't remember us actually firing any customers though. But I don't remember. It, it may it may have happened <laughs> because we were seriously discussing it. I think we, I think if, if we did, it may have been just one. But that's where the phrase "fire a customer" comes from 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 our discussions of whether it was actual or just a fantasy. Today, I think it serves as a reminder of how much things have changed in the games industry in fifteen or sixteen years. PR stunts today, whether silly or slimy, are almost always slickly produced and planned out for maximum viral impact on social media, where there's a a fickle, reactionary and perennially overstimulated audience. But the bug-eating stunt was amateurish, poorly organised, kind of done on a whim. And it was perhaps a last hurrah of the old world of games and the old Apple ecosystem. A final shout from a, a culture that the rising commercialization of games had all but stamped out. An echo from the old days, pre-internet, when the industry was so small that everybody could fit in Chris Crawford's house for the first computer game developers conference. The Mac game development community of the 1990s had kept a bit of that alive, couched as it was in anti-Windows fervor, but now it too was succumbing to this brave new world of video games. Because Apple was marching forward with the release of a new Mac OS X operating system. It was a clean break from 
macOS 9 and, and what would be dubbed the classic Mac era. And that would be good in most regards. But very, very bad for the little companies making little creative games on the Mac. It was also the end of an era for Ambrosia, which began to drift away from games in favour of the more lucrative software utilities market. They had a huge hit in a screen capture utility called Snaps Pro. And for Jason Wong, who had already left the company for what would be a very short spell at Green Dragon Creations, which he followed on with another short stint, this time at Mac Play, they closed the office. And then finally, he did a bit of contracting for Freeverse and freelancing for Mac Addict before he left the games industry entirely and moved into journalism. He eventually landed at a regional newspaper as a reporter and photographer doing serious journalism. And today he's the digital editor at Baltimore newspaper, The Daily Record. He misses the old days at Ambrosia, but that doesn't mean that he necessarily wants to go back to it. He's grown up, and in some ways he's glad to have left those days behind. The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, and produced entirely by me with additional music this week from Evan Schaefer, Jesse Spillane, Kai Engel, Androsik, and Revolution Void. Both interviews used in this episode were conducted as part of my ongoing research into the underappreciated and surprisingly rich history of Mac gaming. I have a book coming out early next year on the topic. It's called The Secret History of Mac Gaming, and you can learn more about it at the publisher's website, unbound.com. We ran a successful crowdfunding campaign there last year, And now that the book's finished and nearly ready to go to the printers, we decided to make the special edition available for order again via Kickstarter. So be sure to grab one if you're interested, as we won't be reprinting this special edition. If you miss this campaign, you'll be left having to buy the mass market trade edition, which is still going to be good, but it's not going to be as cool. So I'll put the Kickstarter link in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other people about it. It'll also be huge help if you leave a rating and review on iTunes and share this episode on social media. The Life and Times of Video Games is on Twitter and now also Instagram at Life and Times VG. My personal Twitter is MossRC. If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help me get the show to a point of long-term sustainability, head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. As thanks, you can get things like ad-free episodes, and there will be ads soon, I hope, and bonus content, and even the chance to pick a topic and boss me around on a future episode. I also now accept one-off donations via PayPal, so if you've got a few bucks lying around and want to sound your appreciation, you can send a payment via paypal.me slash mossrc. That's paypal.me slash mossrc. And you can find links to everything mentioned here on the website, lifeandtimes.games. Coming up next time, 
we'll be looking at the dawn of 3D sports games and the forgotten link between the 16-bit and 32-bit FIFA soccer games is the story of FIFA 3DO, the first home console soccer game with a 3D camera system. My name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. See ya.